there's a motor race, it's very likely you'll find an Australian. Few countries in the world have the sport so ingrained in their psyche as the vast brown land down under. Bathurst is known to all, fan or otherwise, as one of the meccas of Australian sport. Surnames like Brabham, Brock, Weber, Ricciardo and Jones go beyond motorsport fame to broad household acceptance as local sporting heroes. Motorsport is a big deal down under, which means that for all the strengths of the local motorsport scene, eyes often drift beyond the big blue that surrounds the island continent to ventures further afield. The other thing to remember about Aussies is that they like a challenge. It's probably why the 24 Hours of Le Mans has been such a draw for Australian racing drivers, journalists and enthusiasts alike for nearly a century. There are a few bigger challenges in the world of motorsport, so quite naturally, the Peter Brock mentality of biting off more than you can chew than chewing like hell make the race a major draw. 2022 marks the 94th anniversary of not just the first Aussie to race at Le Mans, but the first Australian to win it. Since then, just 39 others have attempted to conquer the famous Circuit La Saf. World champions, Bathurst legends, household names, young rising stars and unknown amateurs alike. Only three others have won it outright, with a handful getting the chance to stand on that iconic podium as winners in their class. For fans, for journalists and for those who work in the sport down under, Le Mans is a frequent regular on the motorsport bucket list, a must-do pilgrimage on everyone's radar. Believe me, to motorsport fans, the race is just as big a deal down under as it is anywhere else in the world. So what about those Aussies who have made the biggest trek of all and actually started the 24 hour? Who are they? What are their stories? What did they achieve? Well, that is what we're here to detail. My name's Richard Crail and together with my colleagues, Tony Shebeki and Mark Walker, we host On The Grid, an Aussie look at the world of motorsport, available as a podcast and weekly on the Radio Show Limited network of channels. So, powered by the Racetalk.com, welcome to Aussies at Le Mans, here on Haggerty Radio Le Mans. Delivering all the news, the informed views, and just telling great motorsport stories since 2003. Powered by the Racetalk.com, this is On the Grid. If Australia's national identity was forged on the brutal beaches of the Gallipoli Peninsula during the Great War, then there's an argument to say that the nation's motorsport identity was part forged by Bernard Rubin, just over a decade later. Driving with Bentley Motors boss Wolf Bonato, with whom he had become friends, Rubin was a member of the famed Bentley Boys, the group of often wealthy, privileged and mainly British motorists and motorsport competitors who helped fan the flames of Bentley's competitive spirit. Together, driving a four and a half litre Bentley, the pair won the sixth edition of the 24 hour, completing 154 laps to win the race both outright and take their class. The son of a pearl salesman, Rubens' history is little known outside of Australia's motorsport historians. Born in Melbourne in 1896, his family moved to London in 1908. Rubens served in the Great War, fighting for the Royal Artillery, however was badly injured in combat and required three years of recovery. 
His friendship with Bonato saw him become a member of the Bentley Boys, and his first attempt at the Le Mans Classic would ultimately prove successful, though not easy. After an early arm wrestle with the Chryslers early in the race, the Bentley team gradually gained the ascendancy throughout the second half, assuming the lead just after dawn on Sunday. Tensions rose when a water leak forced the team to pit soon after midday, a cracked chassis having caused enough vibration to work the radiator loose from its mounts. It could have been worse. The same issue was responsible for the demise of sister Bentleys throughout the race. The last lap would prove dramatic. With water pouring from the radiator and their closest rivals having unlapped themselves, the last tour took 20 minutes to complete. The winning margin ultimately just 13 kilometres on what was then a 17 kilometre long lap. The result, though, was a triumph. Bentley winning at Le Mans again and an Australian driver was the key to the success. Handpicked by the boss of Bentley himself to help lead the campaign. It would be the first major international racing success for an Australian driver, let alone the first win in a major endurance race from someone hailing from the Antipodes. And it would be a long, long time before someone achieved it again. Ruben would return to Le Mans just once more in 1929, where he and Francis Richard Henry Penn Curzon, otherwise known as the Fifth Lord Howe, who having a year earlier had just founded the British Racing Drivers Club, failed to finish after just seven laps. Sadly, Reuben died of tuberculosis aged just 39 in the mid-1930s. His body was returned to Australia to be interned in Melbourne, where he remains to this day. His is a remarkable story, making him a true pioneer of Australian motorsport on the global stage. More people need to know about it. It took 10 years for the next Australian to start at Le Mans, and it came with yet another trailblazing story. Born in Cooma in the New South Wales Highlands in 1905, Joan Richmond was a pioneer in many things. When the state of Victoria, where she lived, banned women from training thoroughbred racehorses, Richmond turned to horsepower of another kind and focused on motorsport. She finished a fine fifth in the 1931 Australian Grand Prix at Phillip Island driving O'Reilly Brooklands. With friends, she then drove from Melbourne to Italy in a bid to contest the Monte Carlo Rally, which she did. While in Europe, she competed in and won the 1932 Brooklyn's 1000 race on the famous British Speedway driving with Elsie Wisdom, the first women to win a race where both male and female competitors could compete. Her sole Le Mans star came in 1937 when driving a 1.1 litre Ford Model 10, she finished 14th outright driving with British driver Maurice Bill Bilney, to whom she was engaged. Sadly, just one month following the Le Mans race, Bilney was killed while competing at Donington Park. Richmond retired from racing at the outbreak of World War II, spending the war working in the de Havilland Aircraft Assembly Factory. She returned to Australia following the war and passed away at the age of 94 in 1999. The National Museum of Australia held an exhibition on Richmond in 2014 and maintained several items donated by her family, including the Brooklyn's Trophy, in their ongoing collection. With Le Mans not contested during the years of World War II, it took another decade beyond peace for the third Australian to compete in the fabled 24-hour, when in 1956 Tony Gaze made his debut at the Circuit Lasarth. 
Gaze is a legend of Australian motorsport. Born in Melbourne in 1920, he flew Spitfires in the Second World War for the Royal Air Force. His wartime service was extraordinary, receiving three DFCs, that's a Distinguished Flying Cross, for his exploits in air combat. One of only 47 men to achieve that distinction. Gaze was shot down over Normandy in 1943. However, with the help of the French resistance, was able to escape through Spain, returning to service in 1944. Perhaps more famously than his World War II exploits, Gaze is known as the man who suggested to the Duke of Richmond, Freddie March, that the access roads around RAF West Hampton would serve as an ideal layout for a motor racing circuit. From there, the Goodwood circuit was born. Gaze contested several races in the 1950s, finishing second in the Lady Wingram Trophy and third in the 1954 New Zealand Grand Prix. His sole Mont start came in 1956, driving a Fraser Nash Sebring with British driver Dickie Stoop. They completed 101 laps before an accident ended their race. Gaze's Le Mans story doesn't end there, however, and uniquely it ties in with another Australian racing great, one who also attempted to conquer the French classic, Lex Davison. Davison, the four-time winner of the Australian Grand Prix, teamed with another famous name, Bib Stilwell, to tackle Le Mans in 1961. The pair had been invited to France by Essex Racing, thanks mainly to their own exploits, racing Aston Martins in Australia and New Zealand, primarily in the Australian Grand Prix and the Australian Drivers' Championship. Sadly, a broken head gasket ended the day for their Aston Martin DB4 Zagato after only 25 laps. So that's not the end of the story, however, and it's here where the Gaze and Davison journeys become entwined. Lex Davison sadly killed in 1965 while practising at a race at Sandown in his native Melbourne. He left behind wife Diana and two sons, John and Richard. Several years after Lex's death, Diana married Tony Gaze to intrinsically link the histories and the futures of two great Australian racing families. As well as becoming stepfather to Lex's two sons, the marriage also ensured that Tony would later become a step-grandfather to Alex, Will and James Davison. 62 years after his grandfather raced at the iconic French track, Alex Davison made his Le Mans debut driving a golf-backed Porsche 911 GTE with Ben Barker and Michael Wainwright. It was a remarkable continuation of the story behind two of the great Australian racing families, intrinsically linked forever. Jack Arthur Brabham was a Formula One driver, but much as it is today with many of today's contemporary F1 stars, Brabham's eye often strayed from pure open wheel competition to the challenges, both from a driving and engineering point of view, experienced only in long distance endurance racing. Sir Jack raced at Le Mans twice, both times before he had even claimed a single Formula One race victory, let alone a world championship. His first attempt came in 1957, finishing 15th outright driving a Coventry Climax-powered Cooper T39 with British driver Ian Raby. He returned the following year, this time driving for the Works Aston Martin squad with another future knight, Sir Sterling Moss, as his co-driver. With Moss behind the wheel, the Aston burst into the lead at the start of the race, pulling away at breakneck speed to have all but three cars lapped just prior to their first scheduled pit stop. However, just after 6pm, their race was over. A broken Conrod left the car and Moss stranded at Mulsan Corner, and Brabham didn't even turn a lap. That would be the end of Brabham's Le Mans adventure, at least for that of Brabham Senior. All three of his sons would later tackle the race, two of them achieving the ultimate prize. 
That story is still to come. Tim Schenken remains an Aussie motorsport pioneer who plied his trade on the road to Formula One and made it to the pinnacle, if briefly. It was, however, in sports car racing where he made his name and found the most success, including making six starts at Lasarth. I caught up with Tim prior to this year's race to reflect on his life as a competitor in sports cars, but also as a constructor in the famed 24-hour. Well, Tim, thank you very much for joining me. Really appreciate your time and your insight into your experiences at one of the world's great races. Where, where did Le Mans first come into your radar? What was the first memory you have of knowing about this incredible race in the middle of France? Well, my first memory was the front page of the Melbourne newspapers in 1955 when there was that horrendous accident with uh, Mercedes and uh, all those fatalities. So that would have made me 12 years of age. And I was just sort of getting the bug. I was just uh, into motor racing. And so that was uh, a, a different sort of introduction to it all. I can imagine. Um, what what sort of impact did that have on a young guy that was looking at this sport and perhaps one day dreaming of racing cars? Well, Richard, I have to tell you, that was 65 years ago. <laughs> and to be honest, I don't remember. But, it, <laughs> but it, couldn't have been, it couldn't have been too negative, of course, because I went on then. I was passionate about uh, motor racing. And I went on, and I mean, I'm still in pops. I've had uh, an incredible uh, career, incredible life, really. Mm. So you went to Europe as a young driver to race open-wheel cars. Was that where, was sports car racing first and foremost, was that on the agenda for you, or was the sole focus making it to Formula One? The sole focus was uh, making it to Formula One. Um, so my passion was open-wheel cars. Um and uh, sports cars didn't come along until 19, it must have been 1970. I might have done some two-litre sports car racing, I don't recall, but 1970, I think through the introduction of Jack Brabham, um, I was invited to as one of the drivers uh, with Matra team mm. um, to drive with uh, Jabui and Depaye. Um, and I've been racing against them in open wheelers in previous years. Oh, at the time, and I think they were a bit suspect to me and they didn't really want to give me much of a go. And I think I got two laps practice or one evening. Um, but as it turned out, all the cars failed, I think, in the first hour. Uh, all the Matra cars, all the teams were out. Despite having done something like a 28-hour test at Paul Ricard at the time. Really? Um, they were all out. So you never got a lap because that some of the results sheets from 1970 don't list you as one of the drivers where others do. So you didn't actually get to drive in the race itself in 1970. No, and if I correct, if I'm uh, right, I think all the cars were out in the first hour. They had some, I think, oil problem. Mm. Um, uh, you'd have to you'd have to look that up to uh, to confirm that. But uh, no, I didn't get in the in, in the car in the race. What were the French like to work with? Pretty distant. Mm. Pretty distant. And up to that time, I'd only been racing with uh, English teams. So, um, yeah, that would be the best way to describe it. Yeah. And then fast forward three years and you find yourself in a Ferrari with Carlos Reutemann. How did the 
deal come together with Ferrari to end up in that car at that race? Well, the deal came uh, together the year before, 72, um, when Ferrari had built those, uh, that beautiful little uh, P12 PB um, sports car. Uh, and I drove with Ronnie Peterson. Mm. We won a couple of races that year. Um, and uh, Ferrari just won that, uh, what I think it was the World Championship of Bakes. I'm not quite sure of the correct title, but it was a walkover. Best cars, best drivers. I have to say best drivers, of course. Uh, best drivers. Um, so uh, that was a wonderful year. At the end of the year, Ferrari decided they needed to pay more attention to Formula One. So they ran the following year a, um, a much reduced sports car program, but Le Mans was on there. Mm. And they were serious. Uh, they wanted to do Le Mans. They did a number of tests. Um, they were happy that the cars and the engines would, uh, would um, do the 24 hours. So they entered Le Mans. So I was there with, uh, with Carlos Reutemann. And you'd had a, a couple of good results in Formula One by this point, especially in 71 with Brabham, um, third in Austria, I think, sixth in Germany. So you'd got some points. Did that, did that help you integrate with Ferrari that they'd seen your performances in F1 and thought, yes, this Aussie guy can clearly drive a racing car? Well, I'm not quite sure how my name came up, but um, I, mean, I was still passionate about doing uh, uh, doing Formula One, but you know you can't uh, turn down a Ferrari factory mm. drive. What what was it like? What was it like driving for Ferrari? There there are so many stories from drivers both back in the day and even today about what it's like racing in that environment. But can you just give us the the feeling of what it was like driving for the Scuderia? Well, the first thing I have to say at the time, I don't think. Well, I certainly didn't appreciate it, to mm. be honest. I mean, my focus was Formula One. Um, yes, Ferrari, that was great. And uh, with Ronnie, we were winning races. We were right up there. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, the first, in 72, the first race we did was in Buenos Aires. Ronnie and I won the race. And we must have got maybe a dozen cups between us. Yeah. We went back to the to the tent, to the garage, and to Peter Shetty and said, you know, what, what should we do with it? We can't, you know, there's too many to take home. And he said, Roger, I'll give you a word, uh, a word of advice. Why don't you give some to Mr. Ferrari? He'd appreciate that. Very seldom does anyone give Mr. Ferrari a cup. So Ronnie and I gave him, we might have given him three or four cups. And so from that time onwards, whenever we were in the factory, we were always uh, welcomed by Mr. Ferrari in his office to say hello or say ciao, whatever. We, we, he didn't speak English, we didn't speak uh, mm. uh, Italian, but uh, we were always welcome. It was a great group for the team, so, so uh, everything was wonderful. The following year wasn't so great because Matra came along with a proper sports car, monocoque, uh, chassis, a lot of aerodynamic work, which Ferrari were pretty restricted on. Uh, so they had a much better car. So the following year wasn't so good, but it wasn't a serious uh, effort at the championship by Ferrari, except for Le Mans. That was going to be important for them. Mm. You mentioned the Ferrari 312, beautiful-looking little car, three-litre flat 12 uh, engine. So all those wonderful Ferrari characteristics. What was it like to drive and, and to be part of that machine? Well, it's a great team, so first of all, and, you know, Ferrari or perhaps any Italian team, when they're winning, it's even better still. Um, 
the uh, the 1972 car was short wheelbase, so it was uh, it was very good on uh, tight corners um, uh, or medium speed corners. Fast corners are a bit nervous. The following year, they extended the wheelbase and they did a lot more aerodynamic work with the car, so the car was uh, a lot um, uh, was easier to drive for better expression, which you really wanted in sports car racing. You didn't want to be fighting it the whole time and and uh, wearing the tyres out and open using the brakes up. Um, but it still it was a tube frame. It wasn't a monocoque chassis, so it wasn't uh, as sophisticated as Actra, uh, as I said. Mm. So your last, uh, before I move on, uh, Carlos Reutemann, what was he like to drive with? We got on very well, uh, very well. We were roughly the same size, same as uh, with Ronnie, so there was no, no need to uh, have to have padding in the seat or anything like that. It suited us both uh, quite well. But I, I should tell you, I have a, a couple of good stories um, about uh, with what, what one had to do with Le Mans and Ferrari. In those days, you had the uh, regular pits opposite the grandstand on the pit straight, but the signalling pits was at the end of Mulsanne Strait. So the race started. We had all uh, between us the three, uh, we had three cars, had agreed with, uh, between ourselves and Peter Shetty what sort of speed we were going to run at. Uh, so um, Mazzario and Pace, I think it was, they were going to go flat out to try and draw the mattress out and um, uh, cause them some mechanical problems. Um, Carlos and I had decided on a much slower speed and Ix and Redmond even slower again. Mm. Um, they, they had a lot of experience there. And I have to say that when you first go to Le Mans, because you've got, in those days, we had two drivers, you didn't have, um, you, you couldn't bed the brakes in with machines at the factory or anything like that. So the first uh, practice sessions are, are, um, are full of, setting the car up, bedding brake, doing all sorts of fuel checks and uh, fuel consumption checks and whatever. So when you start the race, you're still practising, you still don't know the circuit properly. Yeah. Anyhow, the race started and um, every time I went past it, the, the team would take the lap time position or whatever and then you had an old telephone with a little wind-up handle that rang the signalling pits at the end of Mulsanne stretched around the corner. But by the time you arrived there and went around the corner, the team were just sort of stumbling out, the signalers, trying to get the numbers on the board to, to, um, uh, to show you what lap you're on and what position you're on or whatever. So really, neither Carlos or I did, really didn't have much of an idea where we were running. With the, with the fuel system... They had a reserve tank, so when the engine spluttered, you just flicked the switch and then you had enough fuel to get to a lap and a half, whatever it was, to get in the pits. But at night, Goodyear had a blimp and they had a big electronic sign on the side. So as you were cruising down Mulsanne Strait, which, of course, in those days was straight, mm. um, none of these little girl chicanes, we had, we had a real straight there. So probably doing... You know, 200 miles an hour, 320 kilometres an hour. You could look up, and if the balloon was in the blimp was in the right place, you could see where you were running on the uh, wow, yeah, uh, on, on the electronic sponge on the side. Otherwise, you didn't really know until you stopped and changed drivers. But unfortunately, we got I think one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning, and the engine broke, and that was it. Yeah, remarkable year, and and an incredible. 
diverse array of cars that were in the mix as well. You mentioned the Matras, but Porsche had a reasonable go there with some competitive 911s and the 908 was fast and a bunch of other Ferraris as well. So it was a real melting pot of drivers and teams and manufacturers at that point at Le Mans as well. But you're just certainly right about the melting pot of drivers because I think some of them got their licenses in a week. Because <laughs> the standard standard of driving for some of the slower cars was horrendous. Mm. But you learn very quickly it's a 24-hour race. You just always apply a lot of caution. If you're not sure, you wait for your moment to overtake. Yeah, remarkable stuff. So the Formula One journey ended in the end of 1974. Um, what, was it a conscious decision after that that sports cars was it, or were you still searching for Formula One a- ambitions and opportunities after that? No, I think by 74, I said that was my last shot with Ron Turanak and that Trojan Formula One car. And you, I could see I wasn't going to get back into, um, into Formula One. And so I was driving at the time for a German, um, very wealthy German, uh, property developer, Georg Luce, his name was. He had his cars prepared at the factory, um, at the Porsche Racing uh, uh, division of the factory. Uh, he only employed one mechanic. He wasn't really a mechanic. He was a truck driver. So the cars were employed at the factory. So I was, uh, I was driving his cars, which on one hand was pretty cool. Mm. But being the factory, of course, they were... There wasn't much development going on with the cars. That was the nine, the Carrera, 3.2 Carrera, is that right? And the 934 and the 935. Um, but uh, I was having a fair bit of success in that uh, Deutsche Rennmeisterschaft, the German racing series, with him. And uh, I was at, uh, and of course, I was at uh, Le Mans with the team as well. Um, and I really only had, I'm just trying to recall now, uh, when we raced the 934, the engine broke on the first lap, so I came and broke just before the uh, pit entry, so I was able to come into the pit lane with the um, pouring uh, oil all over the uh, pit lane. Um, but 77, which was the last time I did Le Mans, it was the last year I was racing, I was in a 935 with Twan Hazelands. Mm. And we were going where we weren't an outright contender, but I have a feeling that you'd be able to check all of this. We're running sort of fifth in the race, something like that, uh, fifth, sixth in the race. And um, we were through to Sunday, Sunday, early Sunday afternoon, and uh, Twan didn't come round. And uh, in those days, the mechanics could, when a little motorbike could go out and try and find the car, which... They found the car on the side of um, the track at on Mulls Arms Break with Twan still there. Mm. So, and you weren't allowed to touch the car as the rules are now. The driver could work on the car, but the, but the mechanics could. Um, but what had happened was the um, fuel pump, a mechanical fuel pump had seized, lost uh, fuel pressure, and of course the engine stopped. So uh, the mechanics said to Hazelman, just wait there, and they went off. Um, and they got a drive a, a tooth belt, drive a, a rubber tooth belt, one of those long, um, one of those long uh, French uh, rolls. Put the belt in there and went back and indicated to the uh, marshals there that the driver was hungry. 
so gave him the gave him the hazelnut understood what was going on gave him the roll he went around the back took the took the belt off and got underneath and replaced the belt unfortunately the fuel pump had seized so the moment he started the engine it broke again so be nice to have a happy ending but and finish the race but there was none of that still a remarkable story though that's incredible um so in 75 you raced with a kiwi by the name of howden ganley and i'll I'll come to howden in a minute because your stories would be intertwined for a lot longer than that um 76 with the same driver with with tone that you you were talking about you finished second yeah yeah yeah. so that that was your best result second in class 16th outright uh any recollections from the 76 race in particular that was in the 934 well it's interesting you say that because i don't recall ever finishing le mans really yes so uh, i've i've heard a few people talk about that but i don't recall Having uh, having finished them on now, maybe old. My memory is still pretty sharp, so uh, I, I don't know about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, the internet I mean, definitely believes that you finished second in class and sixteenth outright in a Porsche nine three four in nineteen seventy six. Well, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, but to to go back to Howden and and obviously in in seventy five, did you met him before that year, or was that the first time you two had worked together? No, I met Howden when I was doing Formula 3 in 69, 68, 69. Mm. Um, and we, our sort of paths crossed through, well, Formula 3, not Formula 2, because he went off and did Formula 5000, and then our paths crossed again in um, in, in, in Formula 1. Um, and so where, where did the decision to form a racing car construction company come out of all that? Well, that, that came in by 76. I, could, I was sort of finishing my career. I always wanted to do Formula One. I just got, I'd been, I was married, had, uh, had a son, uh, a son Guido, and um, uh, I was looking at what I could do uh, moving forward. What else could I do? And the only business I knew was motorsport. Hmm. So someone had come to me with a proposal to build a Formula Ford car and have a short production on the Formula Ford cars. I didn't know much about business. Howden knew a little bit more. He had a business um, um, overhauling gearboxes, racing gearboxes. So I went to him and said, what do you think of this? So he came back a couple of days later and said, well, this looks pretty good. This is something that looks like it would work. But why don't you and I do it together? So we agreed that. And that was the start. It was 76. We Called the car Tiger. We pronounce it Tiger. You're probably correctly, you might say Tiger. We called it Tiger. Mm. So the TI from Tim and the GA from Ganley. So we started building those cars. We got on to Formula Ford 2000s, Sports 2000s. We built a Le Mans car. Uh, Neil Crang, another Australian, was racing. Formula 3 car, Formula 2 car. We had a race team. Um, so, and in the end, I think we built about 400 cars between uh, 76 and 82. It, it's a remarkable story, Tim, and, and it probably doesn't have the same level of exposure than other other car company or motorsport construction car companies in Australia have had over the years, but remarkably successful. A couple of Australian drivers' championships with Alfie Costanzo, yes. but the, the sports car success as well was enormous across Europe. Um, GB in North America, you were successful as well, but but class wins at Le Mans. How hands-on were you from a 
a business ownership point of view when your customers were running their cars at races like the 24 hour? Um, I, I never went to the 24-hour race with one of our cars, but as far as the business was concerned, I sort of managed the administration side. Howden, a lot more mechanically, um, had the mechanical smarts than myself. Um, he he uh, had the, the sort of concept of the cars, the design of the cars, and we have a dra- we had a draftsman who uh, took the concept and put it onto, onto paper. Um, and of course, we attended uh, races um, where our customers were uh, were running cars. Um, so it was a very busy time. And you know, you put a huge amount into into um, building race cars, but you don't actually get out of it what you put into it. Mm. Satisfaction-wise, yes, if you're successful. Financial, no, it, it's uh, it's a hard slog. And and was it satisfying to still have that involvement in the sport from a well, competitive standpoint? Oh, yes, yes. And, I mean, we had some great drivers. We had um, James Weaver, for example, who carved quite a career in sports car racing. He was driving for us in the early days. Um, so, you know, seeing the cars, seeing your cars win and being part of that is, is, um, is something special. And the company, I think, late 1980s was, was wound up. What was the decision behind that? Well, I left the company in 82. I was trying to get back to Australia. Yep. Uh, and I was offered a job to run an, an IMSA team out of San Diego in 82. So we all packed up and moved uh, there, my family. I had two twin daughters by then, uh, Natalie and Laura. And um, so we moved to San Diego and had a couple of years there. And that team was then going to return to Europe. And I was right in the point of which, you know, what am I going to do here? I've been writing letters to people in Australia who I kept in contact with and nothing was happening there. And I'd written to CAMS, as it was at that time, as the name was at that time, and I had a nice letter uh, back saying, no, we don't have anything for you. Mm. Um, so we are right on the cusp of going back to England. I still had a house in England. And um, uh, I had another letter from uh, probably a telegram uh, or telex from uh, John Keefe, who was the, who was the Secretary General at the time, uh, saying that they did have an opportunity, had an opening, and uh, would I fly out and do an interview? So they sent me an air ticket. I flew Los Angeles, Melbourne, did the interview, um, and I was offered the job. So I went back to uh, San Diego, um, got all the family, and back again to Australia, and started at Cairns. And I have to say that was an eye-opener because I'd never really worked in a proper administration before. So this was, this was a whole new phase of my life. And the rest, as they say, is history because to this day you continue to work for Motorsport Australia. To, to round out the, the Le Mans story, what, what's the overriding memory you've got of that race from your time as a driver? Is there one thing that stands out or is it, a like we said before, a melting pot of, of memories and, and feelings from that time? Well, to most people, the 24-hour race is a long race. My first... My introduction to Nürburgring was in 1969 in a touring car race on the north and south circuit, so combined length around 30 kilometres, in an 82-hour race. Oh, really? So you could say, I could say the one seemed like a sprint, but of course it, it wasn't. No, the thing that was, you, you, the, you had to look after the cars. I think today you can probably drive pretty much flat out the whole race, but you had to look after the cars. Um, 
So that was the first thing. The, as I said before, the, the driving standard for some of the slower cars was atrocious. You had to had to be really on the on on your mark the whole time, but you also had to drive probably five seconds a lap off the potential that you could do the the qualifying speed you could do. Mm. And funny enough, that's very hard to do because it's hard to concentrate running. You'd think five seconds is is uh, is a short period, but in fact, for a race driver, half a second a lap slows is slow. Mm. Five seconds is is uh, is vintage speed. So you had to sort of um, work out ways in which to drive, use less revs, do things differently, so you could still be alert and concentrate and be that uh, and, and run just that uh, much off the pace. Your story in Australian motor racing is a great one, Tim. Thank you so much for your time and uh, giving us some of your memories on the Le Mans 24-hour. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much and look forward to seeing you at a racetrack sometime soon. All right. Thank you, Richard, and I hope uh, your listeners enjoy this little piece. If there was a year that defined the Aussie obsession with conquering Le Mans, it was 1984. Unlike the famous film, though, this was no dystopia. Strong results and a record level of antipodean interest in the French classic, the end result of a year that saw the boxing kangaroo feature more than ever before. The roll call of Aussie drivers to race that year was, frankly, remarkable, with no less than seven taking part. Two were household names, already both Australian sporting heroes. Another was the defending Le Mans winner, while two others were among the greatest exponents of Australian touring car racing, both of them already Bathurst legends, and one of them a two-time winner of the great race. Firstly, there was Alan Jones, the 1980 Formula One world champion with Williams. Unlike Jack Brabham before him, Jones came to Le Mans following his Formula One peak as he searched for the next phase of his racing life. He was paired in an all-star combination too, driving a Kramer Racing Porsche 956B with defending winner Vern Chupin and French Le Mans expert Jean-Pierre Jarrier. Jones' Le Mans debut was successful. He and his teammates finished six outright as Porsche swept the top seven places and eight of the top ten with the crushingly dominant 956. Also driving a Kramer Porsche was Victorian privateer Rusty French. Though first and foremost successful in business through his Sky Sands mining operation, French was a notable touring car and GT racer throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s and still races today, where he doubles as a co-owner of supercars team Tickford Racing. French's most notable racing success came in 1983, when he won the Australian GT Championship driving a Porsche 935. He'd finished second to Jones the year prior too. It was those Porsche links that brought French to Le Mans in 84 with the crack Kramer team. His drive a reward for his Australian GT success. Rusty drove with Tiff Nadell, well before his days as a notable TV presenter and opposite lock aficionado, and David Sutherland. They completed 321 laps and finished ninth outright. Further back was Alan Grice, hero to the Aussie privateer races everywhere, thanks to his long-standing reputation of taking on the factory teams at Bathurst and giving them a proper scare. 
Like French and Jones, Grice was on debut in 1984, driving another privately entered Porsche 956 with Alain Decadenay and Chris Kraft for Charles Ivy Racing. The car lasted through the night, but was out after 274 laps late in the race. The man dubbed Oil Can Harry by legendary Aussie commentator Mike Raymond and the future Member of Parliament for Broadwater would return to Le Mans just once more, driving a Nissan Motorsport R88C as part of a limited World Sports Car Championship campaign in 1988. Having finally won Bathurst in 1986 and as a privateer Commodore driver beaten the Holden dealer team at their own game in a European Touring Car Championship campaign, one that included the Spa 24-hour, Grice would finish 14th for Nissan but wouldn't return. And then there was Peter Brock and Larry Perkins. With all the heraldry that came from being the most famous name in Aussie motorsport, the all-star combination paired the then-current Bathurst champions with another iconic touring car hero in Bob Jane, who would fund the enterprise via his massive Team Arts empire. The Bathurst links went deeper. John Fitzpatrick Racing secured to prepare and run the Porsche 956 that Brock and Perkins would drive. Though a Brit, Fitzpatrick's Bathurst links ran deep. He won the great race in 1976, sharing a Holden Tirana with Bob Morris in what was an emotional, dramatic victory for the privateers over the factory Holden dealer team. The drivers weren't new to Le Mans either. Brock had raced there first in 1976, sharing a BMW CSL with fellow Aussie Brian Muir and Jean-Claude Aubret, lasting 19 hours before failing to finish. He was then entered in 1981, sharing a Porsche 924 GT with his Bathurst-winning co-pilot Jim Richards and his former Holden dealer team teammate Colin Bond. The car was entered by Porsche Cars Australia, at that point run by local importer Alan Hamilton, himself a former racer. Though high profile and high quality, the team didn't make the cut and spent their weekend on the reserves list. Perkins' Le Mans debut came between Brock's first start and the non-event of the 1981 Porsche campaign, driving with Gordon Spice and John Rulon Miller in a Porsche 911 in the 1978 race. They finished 14th. 1984, however, was to be the big show for both, a chance for two of the greatest touring car drivers in Australia, backed by another and in a car fielded by someone who got the Aussie way of going racing. It was, to put it mildly, big news. All the elements were in place for something substantial, as the key protagonist explained in this period news piece. The car has been leased from British driver John Fitzpatrick, well known here as a former Bathurst winner himself, and he was more than happy to make the Porsche available, knowing that Larry Perkins will be calling the tune in its preparation. Perkins croons over the power plant like a mother over a baby, but when it all boils down, Larry, what will it do? If you give it its head, it'll do over the 400k, but the acceleration times are the most impressive things. Uh, it takes only 2.5 seconds to get to 100k and 5.5 uh, seconds to get to 200k and 11.9 seconds to get to 300. It's starting to get a bit slow up there. Perkins and Peter Brock have both tried their hand at Le Mans before in lower categories and a lower key without the success that came to fellow Australian Vern Schupen as part of the Porsche team victory last year. But this is different, a total all-Australian effort at last. But, however meticulous the planning and preparation, Brock has no illusions. Le Mans is still a very different race. Obviously, 24 hours is one hell of a time to keep on driving at those speeds. It can rain, it can get foggy. 
Uh, driver fatigue is a great problem. You have also interwoven into all that is um, a fuel economy uh, regulation, which means you have to obtain the greatest efficiency from your motor car, so a driver has to drive it efficiently as well as fast. The circuit itself, obviously, we don't have anything to compare with that either. No, I think uh, probably the closest you can get to another ball plane or something like that to, <laughs> to that main straight, that Malsan straight. It's, uh, the length of Malsan straight, incidentally, is very, very close to the entire length of Bathurst Circuit, let alone Conroy, that's the whole length. You, you wind up in top gear, for instance, and you keep it flat for something like 40-odd seconds. And uh, you sit there, just having driven there before, you sit there just waiting for that corner to come up, and the machinery is straining, the doors are flapping, you're doing, you know, 380, 400k, and uh, it's a totally new experience driving a car like this in a race like Le Mans. And uh, knowing that we're going to be a chance for outright uh, honours is a pretty exciting sort of prospect. Unfortunately, things didn't end up quite as they'd hoped. Perkins qualified the car a strong 15th, but despite high fuel consumption and oppressive in-car heat that forced a driver change at every pit stop, he and Brock had hauled their bright orange Porsche into 5th position by the 3-hour mark. That's until a wheel came loose with Brock behind the wheel at the end of the Mulsanne Strait just after 6.15pm on the Saturday evening. The limp home and subsequent repairs cost them 28 minutes, but they remained in the game. A broken rear rocker arm cost them a further 15 minutes at 9pm, so the decision was taken to press on throughout the night in a bid to make up time. They'd hauled themselves back into the top 20 when Perkins found lap traffic in the S's just before 2am. There was an off, the car ended in the catch fencing just beyond the famous Dunlop Bridge, and their race was over. They had, however, proven a point. Two touring car races and an Aussie sponsor had come from the other side of the world and properly demonstrated their competitive intent. It wouldn't be the last time. This is On The Grid. Vern Chupin is Australia's best-known, least-known racing car driver. If he were English, the quietly spoken man from the mining town of Wyala in regional South Australia would be fated as one of the greatest of all time in his field. Instead, this high-achieving sports car legend flew under the radar in Australia, despite arguably becoming our finest ever export in the field, and just our second ever Le Mans 24-hour winner. Chupin left Australia with a dream to pursue his motorsport goals, which included Formula One. A highly accomplished carter, he found success in Formula Atlantic competition in the UK, which opened the door to a test with the iconic BRM Formula One team. His testing role with BRM led to his Formula 1 debut two years later, the 1974 Belgian Grand Prix, where he finished 15th. He attempted six further races with Ensign, before a one-off race in Sweden the following year with Graham Hill's team, which ended in a retirement. His final role of the F1 dice came in 1977 with John Surtees. Seventh in Germany was his best result of the four races he started, though a failing relationship with the two- and four-wheeled champion saw that door close at the end of the season. A move to the United States came next, with a shift to USAC Champ Car and IndyCar competition. Chupin made his Indy 500 debut in 1979, however it was in 1981, when driving for Theodore Racing in a Cosworth-powered McLaren, that he made his mark on the IndyCar landscape. He qualified on the outside of the sixth row of the grid, directly behind rookie Jeff Brabham, but made great headway in the race and would ultimately finish third. However, it was at Le Mans where Verne found his groove. 
He made his debut at Lasarth in 1973, driving a Golf Research Racing Mirage M6 with Mike Halewood and John Watson, though failing to finish. With the same team, he finished third in 1973, then with Jean-Pierre Jarrier second in 1977, again driving a Mirage GR8. Two challenging years followed, however it was a move to Porsche in 1981 where things really began to gel. Chupin finished second in 1981, driving a Porsche 936 with Jochen Mass and US legend Hurley Haywood. The debut of the 956 a year later saw Chupin and Mass second outright again. However, in 1983, it all came together, though only just. With Haywood and Al Holbert sharing the driving duties, Chupin's Rothmans Porsche was walking wounded at the end of the 24 hours, limping to the line after overheating issues caused engine damage. Remarkably, the engine seized on the final lap, however, was able to be refired to limp to the line. In the sister car, British ace Derek Bell was flying. He unlapped himself from Holbert and in one of the closest ever finishes at Lasarth, fell just 17 seconds short of passing the team car as it limped towards the line. The car died as it got the chequered flag, but it didn't matter. Chupin was a Le Mans winner for the first time after a decade of trying. Without significant knowledge of Bernard Rubin's achievements in the 1920s, many hailed it as the first Australian victory. Regardless, it was a towering achievement, and outside of the Formula One world titles achieved by Brabham and Jones, ranks still as one of the most significant motorsports achievements by an Australian on the global stage. Ironically, Chupin defended his win with Jones the following year, finishing sixth, and would return to Le Mans a further six times. His final start came in 1989, where driving a Porsche 962C, one of his co-drivers was a Brabham. Sir Jack's middle son Gary sharing the driving duties. They finished 13th outright, 10th in class, to cap off Chupin's remarkable career with a strong result. Vern Chupin's 16 Le Mans 24-hour starts make him the second most experienced Aussie ever to tackle the race. His five outright podiums and one victory certainly make him among the most successful. His is a career played out behind the curtains, without the headlines of the world champions and household names around him. Regardless of that, Verne remains one of the very best ever to tackle the around-the-clock epic from Australia, or indeed any part of the world. Brabham. When it comes to Australian motorsport internationally, it's the surname that everyone has known for at least three generations. While Sir Jack's connection with Le Mans might have only lasted two years, the race became deeply connected with two of his three sons, though all three of them, Jeff, Gary and David, have attempted the race at least once. We've already heard about Gary, who made his lone start at Lasarth driving with Vern Schupen in his final tour in 1989, finishing 13th outright and 10th in class. Jack's oldest son, Jeff, had a much more successful run at it. Though Le Mans was far from the focus of his remarkable international career, it did deliver one of the most successful moments when he became just the third Australian to win the race when he succeeded in his Peugeot in 1993. Jeff had already firmly made his mark as a successful driver before tackling Le Mans. However, 
He won the Australian Formula 2 Championship in 1975 and immediately left for England, racing in an array of Formula 3 series in the mid to late 70s. America beckoned from that and it was in the revised Can-Am series where the eldest Brabham's son made his mark, finishing third in his first full season in a Lola Chevrolet for racing team VDS before winning the series in 1981 in just his second full season. That led to the opportunity in Kart IndyCar Championship where he drove for some magnificent teams throughout his six-year stint in America's top open wheel category. He was fifth and rookie of the year in 1981's Indianapolis 500 for Krakow and fourth two years later for VDS. Brabham would make 10 Indy starts from 12 attempts and until Will Power won the race in 2018, Brabham and Vern Schupen could argue as to who was Australia's most successful driver on the brickyard. Jeff Brabham's Le Mans debut came in 1989 in a factory Nissan RC89, driving with Chip Robinson and Ari Leindeck, though they failed to finish. It was a similar story in the R90C a year later, Derek Daly replacing Leindeck as the third driver. After two years away from Lasard, Brabham returned in 1993 as a factory Peugeot driver. With Christophe Beaucher and Eric Hallery alongside him, the stunning V10-powered 905 Evo won by a lap, delivering the Jodton-led team a remarkable victory, also defending their 1992 victory. The French brand's next win would have to wait, but would again have the Brabham surname written all over us. A race which has seen no rain, unusual, at Le Mans. There you see the reception for Peugeot. They uh, battled with Toyota until the night fell, then transmission problems intervened. Certainly Peugeot had some problems, but the, the number three car running virtually faultlessly. And uh, Geoffrey Brabham of Australia with his two uh, French uh, co-drivers, Eric Hellery and uh, Christophe Duchot. And, uh, there's uh, Sir Jack, he's got two sons to cheer, what a moment for him. Also standing on the podium in 1993 was Jeff Brabham's baby brother, David. In just his second Le Mans 24-hour, the youngest Brabham had been drafted into the factory-backed TWR Jaguar team to drive a racing version of their road-going XJ220 supercar in the brand new GT class, which made its debut in the race that year. David had made his Le Mans debut a year earlier for the factory Toyota team, though had failed to finish. His Le Mans opportunity had come following a rapid climb through the ranks of junior open-wheel racing, including a win in the British Formula 3 Championship and the Macau Grand Prix in 1989. Unfortunately, his Formula 1 debut with the family firm was far from successful, as would later attempts with Simtech in 1994. It was clear that sports car racing was what David Brabham was good at, and boy, wasn't he good at it. With Sajak on hand to watch, David and co-drivers John Nielsen and a pre-F1 David Coulthard won the GT class for Jaguar on the same day Jeff delivered Peugeot what would be their final outright win for the better part of two decades. It was truly a remarkable day for the Brabham family. Sadly, it wasn't to last. After a lengthy battle with race officials, the car was excluded from the results a full month after the race was finished. It would set the scene for several years of frustration for the youngest Brabham in one of the world's oldest races. He was, however,
consistent. Fourth in a golf race in McLaren in 1996. Seventh in 98 and 99 in the unique front-engine Panos Esperanti, the US team to be Brabant's home for more than half a decade. In 2003, he switched to Bentley, joining Mark Blundell and Johnny Herbert in one of a pair of Bentley Speed 8s entered in the GTP class. The cars were dominant, delivering the new-look Bentley boys the brand's first Le Mans win since 1930 in a 1-2 punch for Team GB. For Brabham, though, it was second. Two laps behind the winning car, driven by Dindo Capello, Guy Smith, and Mr. Lamar, Tom Christensen. A return to his GT roots, however, finally delivered that long-awaited Lamar win for David in the latter half of the 2000s. Driving for Aston Martin Racing, he was third in GT1 in 2005, and finally got to keep a winner's trophy when he, Darren Turner, and Ricard Rydell won in 2007. He did it again a year later, but that outright win was still on his mind. And much like his older brother, it was a Peugeot who helped deliver it. Though racing for Highcroft Racing in the American Le Mans series, Brabham was deputised to the French squad for Le Mans duties as Peugeot returned for a third attempt at winning the race with a unique diesel-powered 908. Breaking the stranglehold of Audi, the Pugs finished first, second and sixth. David Brabham teaming with Mark Genet and Alex Wirtz to win by a lap. It was the brand's first win since Jeff Brabham had helped the former iteration of their works team claim success in 1993. In the commentary box, another Aussie had a role to play. Lee Diffie calling the race for American broadcaster Speed TV. And spare a thought for the Brabham family. And Sir Jack Brabham, he's not in well health. He's not in good health. And his two sons have won this French classic. For Verts, it's his second. For Genet, it's his first. And he will get to see the chequered flag. The lion has roared here in France. Peugeot win at home. The French Classic is theirs, finally, after 16 years. That's what this record crowd has come to see. Verts, Genet and Brabham, victorious at Lassaf. TV, brilliant, fantastic. Oh, mate, what a, unbelievable. Uh, I know there's a lot of fans out there, and, the, and my team, Highcroft Racing, Hacker, and all those guys, they are so supportive of me coming here to do this race. A big thank you to you guys. And uh, uh, it's just, just, just stand here and talk to you, um, having just won this race, is pretty, pretty amazing feeling. Well, you know, I mean, you can't, you can't do this unless you've got great people and a great car. And Peugeot definitely gave us that, that's for sure. We had a full David Brabham would return to Le Mans twice more as a driver, finishing ninth for Highcroft in 2010 and sixth in 2012 for JRM. David Brabham started the 24 hours of Le Mans 18 times, a record for an Australian driver. He won it outright once, won his class on three occasions consecutively and scored another two podium finishes. Coupled with his four wins at Sebring, his 2009 and 10 American Le Mans series titles and everything else in his remarkable career, he departed Lasarth as Australia's most decorated sports car racer. Mark Webber did a lot in sports car racing. Pre-Formula 1, he proved himself as a teammate to one of the greatest of all time, German legend Bernd Schneider, in the fearsome Mercedes CLK GT1 cars. Post F1 life, he then helped Porsche return to the pinnacle of sports car racing, 
bringing his years of F1 experience to the new team as they developed the 919 hybrid into the machine that could dominate the world championship. Having been denied so long in Formula 1, Webber's wet crown in 2015 was sweet, sweet redemption. He was officially, finally, a world champion. And yet, his five flirtations with the 24 Hours of Le Mans are probably most famously remembered for producing images that will be replayed until the end of time. The back-flipping Mercedes is now entrenched in the race's history and a dark spot in Mercedes' most glorious racing heritage. I couldn't get the front of the car back down at that speed and I did flip and, and did uh, saw the sky and the ground and the sky and the ground, so it was uh, a horrible experience and the car was very, very good in terms of the impact. It's very, very safe, but uh, obviously that those cars were dangerous in that situation. Fifteen years following the Mercedes era, Weber returned with Porsche. 2014 was a learning year, but 2015 was the real challenge. A chance to add Lamont to his pair of Monaco victories and join the very few who claim both most famous European motorsport majors. Ultimately, he was a lap short. Terno Bernhard and Kiwi Brendan Hartley finished behind the sister car to deliver Porsche a crushing 1-2 result. Their 17th outright win at Le Mans and their first in more than 15 years. Though not a win, Weber's second place at the finish was a useful haul of points and built towards his end-of-season goal of lifting the World Championship crown. Not a win, but important nonetheless. Many Aussies have raced at Le Mans. To tell all their individual stories would take more time than we have to give here, but they deserve to be told regardless. Here's some of the other names to have featured over the years. Derek Jolly made his Le Mans debut in 1959, driving a Lotus 15 with none other than Graham Hill, though they would fail to finish. Melbourne and Paul Hawkins moved to England in the 1960s to chase his racing dream and contested three Grand Prix, gaining the notable attention by becoming one of just two drivers ever to have crashed into the Monaco Harbour, when he did when his Lotus spun into the water during the 1965 Monte Carlo Classic. It was in sports cars where Hawkins made his name. He won the Monza 1000 in a Ford GT40 driving with David Hobbs in 1968, finishing third at Watkins Glen and at the Nürburgring as well. He made his Le Mans debut earlier than that, however, driving an Austin Healey Sebring with American John Colgate Jr. in 1961. He'd return in 1965, finishing 12th in another Healey, before teaming with Mark Donoghue in a Holman and Moody Ford GT40 the following year failing to finish after a differential failed after five hours. He led the race early in 1967, this time sharing a GT40 with Ronnie Bucknam, and were running strongly in sixth before a broken valve saw them fail to finish just after the 18-hour mark. It was a case of what could have been for the team, the sister Shelby American entry driven by AJ Foyt and Dan Gurney betting the Ferraris by four laps as the Americans routed the Italians in their famous battle. Hawkins was back in a Ford the following year, driving with David Hobbs, with whom he had his longest co-driving relationship, though they failed to finish. Sadly, Hawkins was killed in 1970, burning to death while testing a Lola sports car at Silverstone. Neil Crane made four starts at Le Mans in the 1980s, his first coming with Ray Bellum and Gordon Spice in a Tiga GC286 in 1984. Crang would serve as one of the directors of Schenken's Tiger Company throughout his career. Open wheel ace Lucas Cesaro drove for the Martini Lancia team in 1985 and finished sixth on debut in the Ferrari-powered sports car. A year later, Mike Hall drove a Tiger with David Andrews and Duncan Bain, failing to finish. 
Two years after conquering the mountain, Czech refugee turned Bathurst 1000 winner Thomas Mezera went to Le Mans, combining with a pair of Swedish drivers to finish 15th outright in a Porsche 962. It was the early stages of what would be a lengthy relationship with the brand that would end up with him serving as Australia's chief Porsche driving instructor for many years. Mark Scaford won everything there was to win in Australia when he first went to Le Mans in 1997, sampling the circuit Le Sartre aboard a Newcastle United-sponsored Lister Storm with accomplished co-pilots Tommy Erdos and Julian Bailey. The 7-litre Jag V12-powered monster, however, was out after only 77 circuits. Ray Lintott was known for campaigning a Dodge Viper in Australian GT racing in the 1990s, but he made his Le Mans debut late in the decade, tackling the 1999 race with Manfred Uraz and Oliver Thevenin in a Porsche 911 GT2. It would last just 24 laps. Like Scaife before him, Aussie touring car hero Jason Wright had ticked all of the boxes locally before he first went to Le Mans in 2013. Driving a Ferrari for 8-star motorsport in the LMGTE AM class, he partnered with Venezuelan Enzo Potolicchio and Rui Arguis from Portugal. They completed 294 laps, but ultimately failed to finish. Aussie open wheel and later sports car race John Martin also made his debut in 2013, driving a G-Drive racing Orica in LMP2 with his World Endurance Championship co-drivers Romain Rusinov and Mike Conway. The week had gone too well. The trio crossed the line in third position in class, only to be later disqualified after the car was found to have exceeded the maximum fuel capacity of 75 litres. Well, Ryan Briscoe's post-IndyCar career saw him shift successfully to sports cars and his Le Mans debut came in 2013 alongside Scott Tucker, Marino Franchetti and the now infamous Level 5 racing team that Tucker funded from his payday loans business. They would fail to finish. Stephen White was a GT3 and GTE regular in the first half of the 2010s, linked mainly to AF course run programs. That's where he found himself during his Le Mans debut in 2014, sharing a 458 GT2 with Mikhail Regello and Sam Bird. An Aussie who left our shores early to chase his racing dreams, James Allen, made his Le Mans debut in 2017 and with Graf Racing finished a fine sixth outright, fifth in LMP2 with Richard Bradley and Frank Metelli. Well known in Australia, Nick Foster has gradually built his long distance racing credentials in Europe after a successful Carrera Cup campaign and championship win down under. After plying his trade in multiple series for several seasons, he made his Le Mans debut in 2020, finishing 18th in a Eurasia Motorsport Liga with Roberto Miri and Naburo Yamanaka. John Corbett made his debut last year, finishing 28th for racing team India Eurasia. His Liga shared with Tom Cloet and James Winslow. And finally, the 40th and most recent Aussie to make his Le Mans debut was Scott Andrews. A young man from Victoria raced a Kessel Racing Ferrari in GTE AM last year, driving with Mikkel Jensen and Takesha Kimura. This is On The Grid. And finally, there's Matt Campbell, whose career is still young and his journey still fresh in our minds. The young kid from country Queensland who grafted and made it on raw talent, winning his class on debut for Porsche and surely placing himself towards the front of the line to secure a coveted Penske Porsche seat when the brand returns to top-level sports car racing next year. We spoke with Matt for On The Grid before the 2022 race. Yeah, I mean, like you say, it was quite special the first time, obviously winning 
winning on debut as well uh, in a brand new uh, RSI, the 17 car. And uh, yeah, it was phenomenal. I mean, the weekend was just so magical. I mean, basically from, from practice, we were really fast from the outset. Uh, qualifying went well. And then uh, as soon as we got into race, I think already by about uh, four hours in, we had about two minute lead. You know, obviously at Lemoyne, you need a lot of luck early on in the race to be able to get an advantage with uh, the safety cars and, and slow zones and everything like that. Because if you get just one wrong slow zone, you can lose up to 60 or 70 seconds, depending on which one it is. So the race ran really smoothly. And uh, yeah, it was a phenomenal day. Day I'll never forget, that's for sure. Uh, winning here. And uh, we've been a close couple other times, but uh, for sure, the the first one and, and, and debut was the most special. What's the track like to drive? You, you've driven some incredible racetracks in your life and, and early you made your mark at, at Mount Panorama in the 12 hours where a lot of people went, oh, gee, this guy can drive. What's Lamar like and how does it compare to some of the other amazing racetracks you've been fortunate enough to visit? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, like I said, I've been fortunate to drive on many racetracks around the world now, tick a, a lot off the, the bucket list. But Lamar is something so different about it, which you don't get anywhere else in the world. Uh, you know, obviously the, the straights here are so long and, and everything like that, but it's it's really hard to put into words. It's just so different anywhere else. Like it's like a, a Bathurst, Norse life, uh, and then you've got Lamar. Mm. You know, for me, these three are, are the most extreme, so far different anywhere else in the world. Whereas when you go to places like Spa or Laguna Seca or something, you know, it feels like any other racetrack to me. Whereas when you come to these places, it really has something special and, and there's something so unique about it. You know, as soon as you start to arrive at the circuit, you see the team, you see the garages and everything, you know, it's a big race and um, yeah, you're in for, for a big week, but uh, yeah, it's always special. Pressure's the wrong word, but do you feel like there's an eye over all of the Porsche drivers around about the makeup of both the IMSA and WEC prototype programs when Porsche comes back into the top class of sports car racing? Yeah, I mean, def- definitely got line, and and so does Porsche and all of us within uh, the Porsche driver group. Um, you know, all of us factory drivers. Obviously, we would love to be in that position to be able to go back to top level prototype racing, and for me to be able to get such an opportunity. Um, you know, it was always a dream, especially when I joined Porsche at the time. I was still in LMP1, and you saw the likes of El Bamba, obviously coming up through the pyramid, uh, and and for myself, that was, you know, that's sort of the last. Uh, well, let's say the top of the pyramid for me and the last one I want to tick off, you know, we've uh, had a fantastic progression throughout my career and, and especially once we joined Porsche and and for me, that's where I would love to be uh, at some point one day and, and get to the top level profile. To hear the full interview, check out our Lamar preview edition of On The Grid in your favourite podcast archive. So there you have it. 40 names, all of them with incredible stories to tell about one of the world's great motor races. We hope you've enjoyed our look back at the history of Aussies at Le Mans. On behalf of Mark Walker and Tony Shebecki, from On The Grid and theracetalk.com, I'm Richard Crail. Thanks for listening, and please enjoy the 2022 24-hour classic here on Haggerty Radio Le Mans.